hoity-doody little buckaroo. To you, like animals, we sure do. So come on down to the weekly meeting of the Animal Fan Club. Cuckoo! Cuckoo! The cuckoo clock is proclaiming that it's creature clock. So ring that buzzer. It sounds like a lion roar. And open the door to join us for the 26th meeting of the Animal Fan Club. I'm squishy little salamander Meredith. And I'm ready to emerge from my home like a sleepy cicada Mike. And we meet every week at our clubhouse we like to call the Dalmatian Station. To talk about our favorite animals. What we lack in expertise, we make up for an unbridled enthusiasm and childlike wonder. Wow! So saddle up that miniature seahorse and hold on tight for the furriest, fin-filled, and feathered podcast in all of the kingdom animalia. Yes, saddle up that seahorse. Yeah, that hippocampus. That hippocampus. I had a friend text. He was just like, loving the pod. He was like, go hippocampus. That's <laughs> was like Out of the blue. I was like, that's amazing. Yeah, Jesse texted me that he was actually listening to it. I think he understood what we were doing a little better now that he had heard an episode. It was kind of yeah. fun taking him on the ride and just being like, so we're doing this now. And he's like, okay. I know. He was such a good sport. And he made such a splash. He sure did. But I'm sure people will be uh, quite relieved to not have to hear a whole episode of those mouth noise. I know. It was really fun mixing it because they're so soft. So I would like really bump up the mouth noises. So there was a lot of <laughs> silly sound management of like, I even made the little mouth noise regions different colors so I could see them quickly, you know? Adventures in mouth noise editing. That's really funny. Meredith, I saw the cutest thing on the internet yesterday. Mm-hmm. It looked not cute, but it, it was very cute. There was this corgi that was covered in strawberry jam because it had gotten into where it shouldn't have been and eaten all the jam. Oh. And then it had passed out on its back with its legs up because it had a sugar crash. Yes. It looked like it was covered in blood. And so the people walked in and saw what they thought was a murdered corgi, but it was just a kind of mischievous corgi who had too much sugar and then needed to take a nap. Ugh. Boy, I related to that dog. <laughs> I know. Oh, how cute. It was adorable. Oh, that reminds me. It was like one of those things that probably circulated on Facebook because this was like pre-Instagram days. You know those characteristically pink pastry boxes that like donuts come lined up in? Sure. It looked like it was probably some sort of like Eastern Hemisphere tropical tree dwelling creature had gotten into this pastry box and his stomach he was like laying there like all splayed out his stomach was like so distended and it was probably a very similar like crash to that corgi he had just eaten all the donuts (laughs) (laughs) that's really funny yeah that's like old school memeage so I discovered this show Mike I don't know if you've heard about it they've been advertising it on Netflix called Absurd Planet. I haven't seen that. Oh my gosh, you have to check this out because it's like, I'm feeling like a little bit threatened by it because it kind of seems like they took our spirit of animal frivolity and joyousness and like turned it into a Netflix show. I mean, we saw like stars of Animal Fan Club. There was like a wolf eel. Okay, get this. We had the Brand Clubby Lawyer commercial. Yeah, like a week ago. Bovie Day, Andura, and Marmot. So they had a whole Barry Sparkles star-nosed mole Esquire commercial. 
I was like, get out of here. That's like literally the intersection of the things that we've been doing. I know. It's like, what? And it's actually, I mean, I think the humor, the jokes are kind of, they fall a little flat. They're like very corny, which leads me to believe it's kind of a show for children, but not really. Because then there was this whole thing about like these pearl fish who like take up residence inside of what was called on the show a sea cucumber's poo hamper. Wait a minute. Sea cucumbers have poo hampers? Well, they have poo-poo holes like we all do. But these fish, these like, I guess they're parasitic fish called pearl fish are like the perfect thin diameter to slither in and take up residence inside of like sea cucumber butts. But the joke, she was like, this pearl fish is taking up residence in this poo hamper. And I was like, a poo hamper? Come on. I think that we would have come up with a better term than poo hamper. I agree. I have faith in that. And they had a whole thing about the marabou stork that I found to be very funny. What's a marabou stork? Oh, well, you know, I don't want to go into it because it's actually been on my list. Oh. Because in birding communities, it's like one of the rarest birds to be able to photograph or sight. I shouldn't say photograph, but they're just hard to track down. But they're crazy, crazy looking birds. They've got like these weird scrotum necks. But anyway, I would just advise you to check it out and just kind of of gauge how you feel about it in light of the work we've been doing. Sure. Can you say the name again? It's called Absurd Planet. Okay. Absurd Planet on Netflix. Yeah. I'll do some research and I'll get back to you. Yeah. I respect it. It gave me some good laughs. I appreciate that they too have captured upon just how silly animal edutainment can be. (laughs) Sure. But I think we did it first. I'm just saying. Yeah. We would never say something like poo hamper. I know. Don't get it twisted. We're funnier than that. Exactly. Meredith, you sent me the Instagram story from the Cincinnati Zoo where they had a few suggested quarantine houses. (laughs) Yeah. Do you remember which house you want to be in? You know, it's probably on the story, so I can't really look at it anymore. But I know it had a few of our favorite animals. There was like the Okapi was in there. Fiona might have been in there. Yeah, house number five with Fiona the hippo, Jomo the gorilla, the Galapagos tortoise. Yes. Isla, the Taman... Tamandua. Yeah, Isla was the um the clincher for me. And then Riley, the Okapi, with the eyelashes. Yeah. I would be in house number three with Moose, who's a cheetah companion dog. Yeah, he's a chocolate lab, Moose. Well, even better. I know, so cute. Sabu, who's an elephant. Uh-huh. Fen, the giraffe. Barry, the lace monitor. And Lightning, the sloth. That's great. Yeah. That's also a very strong house. Yeah, very mammal heavy. Similar format. Mostly mammals, one little lizard moment. Was a lace monitor or lace lizard? Lace monitor. Oh my goodness. I wonder why. I need to look into that one. I hope it has to do with their style and their fashion decisions. Or maybe they're all like granny in spirit and they just love a doily. Yeah. One time when I was in Connecticut, I went to this place called Tinkling Teacups because I thought maybe (laughs) I could get some coffee, but it was just a bunch of grandmas having their tea parties every day. And I walked in and walked immediately out. See you guys later. That is so cute. Meredith, another animal thing that I saw that I sent you was John Falswan and Jaber. Yes. Kind of the intersection of animal humor and music theater humor, which I feel like is a good place for us to be. I know. I love John Val Swan. That is like really adorable. 2460 Swan. 2460 Swan, indeed. 
Well, I think we should get into it. I feel like we have an exciting episode ahead of us. Yeah, I mean, I'm excited. I sure am. I have so much information. I'm going to have to really just kind of gloss over most of it. That's okay. We're not here for um, completeness. We're here for fun. Truth. Well, (laughs) let's kick it off with the old taxonomy cheer. Let's do it. Ready? Okay. Taxana you. Taxana we. Taxana who? Taxana me. Kingdom. Animalia. Multicellular eukaryotes. Phylum. Mollusca. Yes, it speaks of the trinity. Class. Bivalvia. Hingy, headless, shelly friends. Order. Cardiida. An order of saltwater clams. Family. Cardiida. It's a true cockle. Genus. Tridacna. Indo-Pacific regions. Species. Gigas. The giant clam. The largest extant bivalve mollusk, a.k.a. the killer clam. The killer clam? The killer clam, formerly known as the killer clam. It doesn't actually harm humans, but it's so big that it feels like it would. Like, if you stick your arm in it, it's going to chop off your arm. But that doesn't really seem to happen. What maniac is going around sticking their arms in clams? Well, there's a lot of clam fanatics out there, actually. And I watched a lot of YouTube content about clams. And there's this one guy that goes to a clam farm in the Pacific Islands somewhere. And it was really funny because you could tell the operator of the clam farm is kind of just like gently answering questions. And then all of a sudden the dude like busts out species names and starts asking very, very specific (laughs) clam questions. And the guy's kind of like, oh, starts answering the questions at that level. Had a little nut flex. Exactly. And, you know, he was so excited about seeing this one particular variety of clam and he had never seen one in the wild before. And now he was excited on his future clam dives. Maybe he would see it and recognize it instead of seeing it and being like, oh, this is that type of clam. Now he had the visual of like, oh, this is that rare clam. Yeah. I feel like that's how we would be if we like went to like one of those interactive farms. We would just have like all of these bovie day questions and... You know, we would just be really eager to show off like how much we knew. Yeah, that's how I am on the at-home safari from the Cincinnati Zoo. Mm -hmm. I'm always like, are cheetahs groovy? Asking those hard-hitting questions. Yeah, they never answer them. So I've been on this mollusk journey since you talked about this garden snail. Oh, I love it. Because I just needed to know a little bit more. So we have the phylum, the mollusca, the mollusks. And then our class is the bivalve. So the valve is the shell. Okay. So each valve is an articulating part of the shell. Okay. Oh, I didn't know that. Okay, cool. I didn't either. I thought it was something internal. Right. The system of it, like how it siphoned water or whatever. Yeah. So for example, these chitons that kind of look like trilobites, they're another type of mollusk. They have eight dorsal articulated shell plates. So they have, it kind of looks like, yeah, it looks like a trilobite or maybe like the back of a lobster, like the tail of a lobster almost in the way that these plates exist. And so there's eight valves because there's eight dorsal articulated shell plates. So it's because of the number of plates. So a bivalve, a clam has two articulated plates. Love it. Yes. Our subclass is the heterodonta. Okay. So that includes like edible clams, cockles, and the venus clams. Sounds like some like weird like pro vagina lady something Venus clams. It sounds like a woman's self care product. Venus clam salve for your Venus clam. Ew, I know 
ew. The two shell halves are equally sized, so you could say that it's equivalved. Yeah, that follows. If you hold your hands together, Meredith, like they're a clam, like each hand is a side of a clam shell, yep. where your hands meet in the heel of your hand, yeah. that's where the teeth are. So they have a few cardinal teeth in the middle that are grouped together, and then on either side, they have lateral teeth, hence heterodont, because they have different types of teeth. Got it. Okay, cool. The shells do not have a nacreous layer, which kind of gives it the mother of pearl sort of color. Okay. That kind of shiny iridescence, right? Right. So then we get to the order Cardida, I think, is how you say it. C-A-R-D-I-I-D-A. Cardida. Okay. So it's an order of saltwater clams. It's not the only order of saltwater clams. Then we get to the family, the Cardidae. A cockle is an edible marine bivalve mollusk, apparently. Okay. And we call many edible bivalves, loosely, we call them cockles. But only if it's a member of the Cardidae is it a true cockle. Okay. True cockles, false cockles. Where do we even begin or end? Who's to say? So they have bilateral symmetry. So like each side, it's symmetrical with itself. Okay. And it's a beautifully rounded, heart-shaped shell. They like a sandy, sheltered beach. They live all over the world. Then the genus Tridacna are the large saltwater clams. Okay. In this genus, they have a brightly colored mantle, which we'll get to later. Okay. In our mollusk anatomy. And they live in shallow waters of coral reefs and like warm seas. They like the Indo-Pacific region. So might they share a habitat with the seahorse? Yes, they might. Ooh, and they probably, well, actually, seahorses probably would be a little bit further out. They like shallow water, seahorses, and on the bottom. So maybe they, like, maybe, maybe, just maybe in my heart of hearts, I hope this, that there is a a seahorse clam animal pal situation. Yeah, I think it might be. How cute. A little raven fish mollusk journey. Creature pals. Creature pals. So there's some biochemical studies that they've been doing recently that makes us think that maybe there exist morphologically indistinct cryptic species. Wow. So morphologically indistinct means that visually they look the same or they have the same form. So if you're considering them, then they appear to be the same, but they're in fact not. So a cryptic species is a distinct species that is erroneously classified and hidden under one species name. So there might be multiple species of this clam that we all identify as one species. I see. This is clearer when we consider the clam in question, the Tridacna gigas, because it looks like the other giant clams in its genus until it gets so big that it's like, oh, well, this can't be one of these species of clams because it's so big. Too jumbo. Yeah. I'm a hashtag clam truther. I just want to know what the individual species are. Yes. But my gigas is a pretty serious clam. It can weigh over 440 pounds. It can be 47 inches across. (gasps) It can have a lifespan of over 100 years in the wild. Oh, my gosh. Mm -hmm. When they start their life, the little larval clams are planktonic, which means that they just float with the current. They can't swim against the current. Mm -hmm. But they become sessile in adulthood. 
which means it does not have its own means of locomotion. Okay. So it's stationary, sessile. And the biggest one on record was four feet and six inches across, and it was 510 pounds of just shell, so likely 550 pounds of live weight. Oh, my goodness. These are really, really big clams. I had no idea such a thing existed, but I shouldn't be surprised, but I am surprised. Well, you've probably seen the shells in museums and stuff. If you really think about it, like when there's an enormous clam shell, it's probably a gigas. And you know what this just made me think of? Do you remember when you and Zach had those National Geographic screensavers? Uh Uh-huh. And I had had a student on one of his listening quizzes we obviously were giving them too much time on these quizzes because he drew a whole underwater seascape with a big ass clam and a bubble coming out of it saying you'll never get by pearls that's right yeah and then we used to apply that quote to like every animal that came up in your nat geo screensaver including the mama hippo and the baby hippo (laughs) yeah you'll never get my pearls you'll never get my pearls (laughs) so let's talk about mollusk anatomy please So the mantle, a.k.a. the pallium, that's the Latin term, Mm -hmm. is a significant part of mollusk anatomy. It's a dorsal body wall, so it's on the back, generally, and it covers the visceral mass. Although the back is like, what a... I mean, can you even talk about front and back when you're talking mollusks? Okay, so when you're talking this, we're not really talking about the shell structure, right? No. This is like the goop inside. This is the goop inside. Isn't that a Kate Bush album? Venus Clem. So the mantle is generally, it's the dorsal body wall, which covers the visceral mass. Okay. It usually protrudes in the form of flaps beyond the visceral mass. So like on a squid, it would be the kind of flat surface with the little things coming out of the side. Like the cephalopods will use their mantle for locomotion. Your gastropod friends and my clam friends will use it to grow the shell. So the mantle is kind of the part of the body, the organ that the shell grows off of. Okay, cool. In many species of mollusks, the epidermis of the mantle, so the edge of the mantle, will secrete calcium carbonate and conchiolin, which is what creates the shell. Yeah, so it's the same for um, snails. It was a calcium carbonate shell. Exactly. Cool. The same surface that's creating it. Yeah. Oh, I love it. Isn't that cool? Creature connections. Yeah, well, they're both mollusks. I love this. So then there's the mantle cavity, which is a central feature of molluscan biology, and it's formed by the mantle skirt, which is a double fold of mantle enclosing a water space. Like a dust ruffle. That's where you'll find the gills, the anus, the osphridium, which is like the nose, the nephridiopores, which are like the kidneys, and the gonopores, which are like the genitals. That checks out. Yeah. <laughs> gonopores. And I like nephridiopores. Nephridiopores for like the kidney, like a nephrotologist. That's a kidney doctor? Mm-hmm. Oh, I didn't know that. Cool. I always think that it has something to do with like canopic jars and Nefertiti, but yeah. that I might be really wrong and I <laughs> have not researched that. The mantle cavity can function in a bunch of different ways, like as a respiratory chamber, part of the feeding structure, brood chambers, or like a locomotory organ and cephalopods, and it's very muscular. Okay, yeah. It all seems like a big old muscle in there, doesn't it? 
Yes. So we'll once again remember that the mantle is the organ that grows the shell. So it's kind of the outer thing. So I guess the mantle cavity would be kind of the area between the shells, which is where all the business is. Right. So the gigas is the only clam that can't close their shell completely. So they kind of always stay a little bit open. You know, their other clam friends could learn something from them. You know, don't be so closed off all the time. Yeah, I like that a lot. You know, stay open to possibilities and phytoplankton. Yeah, open hearts, open shells. They exist with a bunch of symbiotic organisms. Mm -hmm. They contain zooxanthellae which are symbiotic organisms and they pack tight on the edge of the mantles and they help them grow massive calcium carbonate shells the same way that these zooxanthellae also do the same for coral reefs, which is, okay. God, I don't even know what a coral reef is. The zooxanthellae are presumably subsist on carbon dioxide, phosphates, and nitrates supplied by the clam. I don't know. I feel like in, in in some of my clam research, somebody was like, oh, you don't really need to feed a clam. They kind of like photosynthesize or whatever. And so I guess these little organism friends are the ones that are photosynthesizing. And somehow that provides the clam with the food or something that it needs to survive. But there's just a, I have a lot of mollusk mysteries that yeah. are coming from this that I don't completely understand. Could be a new segment. <laughs> Mollusk mysteries. It's like what happened with echinoderms exposed. Yeah. Well, that's why this became so much about just what the fuck's up with mollusks. Again, we're in uncharted territory as far as like, you know, we specialize in chordata, (laughs) I think we could safely say. And then when we venture outside of that into creatures that, you know, are quite different from us in every way possible, it's just hard to wrap our heads around it. Yeah, it sure is. And, you know, I watched a couple videos of clam preparation, food preparation, which is, that's a weird journey. Yeah. You know, when they take the meat out of these larger clams, it's kind of just this viscera, you know what I mean? And it's like, how do you say, they're like, oh yeah, this part's bad, this part's bad. And it just kind of all looks like goop to me. Exactly. But I know you're wondering, Meredith, do clams have eyes? I was wondering. Well, the mantle border of our gigas is covered with several hundred eye spots that are about a half millimeter in diameter, so they're very small. And it has a small cavity with a pupil-like aperture and about like 100, maybe a little more photoreceptors. So they can detect a sudden dimming in light. Okay. If a predator's over top, then they'll retract their mantles a little bit and close a little bit. Yeah. But if there's more light, they do not retract their mantle. And it can detect movement before a shadow is cast and it can react to changing shadows. Okay. Wow. I really had no, I kind of just assumed because I couldn't, like, there were no clear visual indicators that they had eyes. I just assumed that they were one of those creatures that just did without. But this is really interesting. Yeah, it's very interesting. I already said something about the zooxanthellae. It's where the clams get most of their nutrition. Okay, Meredith. Mike. We finally made it to your favorite part. Hot clam on clam action. I knew, I was hoping we'd get there eventually. They have sex. They're hermaphrodites like your snail friends. I was wondering. So they produce both eggs and sperms. Mm-hmm. 
It's not possible for them to self-fertilize, but they can produce with any other member of the species. So that's good news because it's not like they can run all over their habitat because they're sessile. Right. Just like all of us right now. I know. Wait, so how do they find one another? How do they get to each other to get it on? Well, there's a transmitter substance called spawning-induced substance. Cyst. Or cyst, which helps synchronize the release of sperm and eggs to ensure fertilization. Okay. Cyst is released through a siphonal outlet, and then the other clams detect cysts immediately. Incoming water passes chemoreceptors, so I guess chemical receptors, situated close to the incurrent siphon which transmits the info that cis is present directly to the cerebral ganglia, which is our clam friend's simple form of a brain. Yeah. It's like, hey, cis. Yeah. When cis is nearby, the giant clam (laughs) will swell its mantle in the central region and contract its adductor muscles. Uh Uh-huh. Very Martha Graham. Very Martha Graham. Yeah, I'm actually contracting right now in my core. Me too. Each clam will fill its water chambers and close the incurrent siphon. And then the shell contracts vigorously with the adductor's help. So the excurrent chamber's contents flows through the excurrent siphon. And then a few contractions containing only water, eggs, and sperm appear in the excurrent chamber and then pass through the excurrent siphon into the water. My God. It's almost like they go through like a Lamaze thing. It's like, hey, sis. Exactly. It's like, what's up, sis? <laughs> I guess like incurrent and excurrent. So incurrent would be water coming in, and then excurrent would be water leaving, I guess, through the incurrent siphon and the excurrent siphon. Okay. So it's pretty much like once they detect sis, they load up their outbox with a bunch of eggs and sperm, and then they schedule a UPS pickup, but not really. <laughs> They use broadcast spawning because they can't get close enough to smush. So they just kind of release it far and wide. They release their sperm and eggs far and wide. And other clams, because there's cysts in the water, are doing it too. So they all kind of like do it at once. And then the eggs and the sperm meet up. And then they make a bunch of little babies that, as you remember, are planktonic and are just kind of floating around all willy-nilly. So essentially the sperm and the egg meet in open water. Yeah, and then the clams just kind of float around for a while until they're like heavy enough to, I guess, stay put. What? That's insane. It's just insane that that works. Yeah, well, they can release more than 500 million eggs at a time. Well, I guess in that quantity that, I guess that makes sense. It does seem to be connected with the moon cycle, I guess. Of course, these are Venus clouds. From the full moon to the new moon seems to be when the spawning happens. Got it. Contractions every two to three minutes. Intense spawning ranging from 30 minutes to two and a half hours. Intense spawning. If the clam doesn't respond to the spawning of neighboring clams, it may be reproductively inactive. So I guess there's asexual clams or inactive clams maybe is a better way of saying it. They don't reproduce asexually. Right. But they're more in kind of the asexual, aromantic lifestyle. Hey, it takes all types. Just a little bit about egg development. So once the egg's fertilized, it'll float for about 12 hours until it hatches in its larval stage. It starts making its calcium carbonate shell immediately. It'll soon develop a foot, which can help it move on the ground. But these are tiny. They're like 0.0063 inches. Yeah. Micrometers, like 160 micrometers. Got it. After about a week, the clam will settle 
on the ground, although it'll move around for the first few weeks. So I guess it doesn't travel super far and wide. I guess it's kind of a limited broadcast, like an AM sort of thing. Yeah, yeah, naturally. The clam is considered a juvenile when it's about eight inches in length. And then it's difficult to observe the growth rate of it in the wild. But laboratory reared giant clams have been observed to grow about 12 centimeters or 4.7 inches a year. So it takes a little while to get to enormous size. I would explain there are very older ages too. Yeah, they can be some old clams. I know that was a lot of information, Meredith. I really went in on it. But I think that major takeaways from this is that we now know a little bit more about mollusk anatomy and that there's sure. the mantle, which means robe, literally. Right. On our shelled friends, the mantle is the part of the mollusk that grows the shell. That's true on your gastropods, for sure. And that's true on my cockles as well. Warms my cockles. Also, we've learned that both of our mollusks that we've investigated so far are hermaphrodites. Yeah. Or hermaphroditic, maybe. And that they don't reproduce with themselves, but they maximize the reproduction when they meet another mollusk of the same. So both Mm -hmm. make eggs and sperm and then fertilize with each other. Right. Nothing about a sperm digestion organ in (laughs) my clam friends. Too bad. It is too bad. But there's another sort of like cis spawning inducing serum, like some sort of love dart analogy. Yeah. (laughs) For the snails, they were firing love darts at one another to be like, it's time for you to close your sperm digestion organ and get ready. It's time. To get down to business. But my clams are just like, whoa, sis, something's in the water. And then they just get active, you know? Yeah. They just start expanding and contracting. Full Martha Graham. Martha Graham clam. Ooh. Do you have any clam-related questions, concerns, traumas? Oh, my goodness. I wouldn't even know where to begin. There are clams, though, that do have like a foot. Like they are able to move around. Because I feel like I've seen footage of that. Yes, there certainly are. But the giant clams don't seem to be that. At least the gigas. But I would assume the entire genus is probably not very capable of movement just because they're so fucking heavy. Yeah, totally. All that calcium carbonate. Really weigh a man down. Well, a hermaphroditic. Right. Excuse me. Person down. A clam. That was great. Every time we get into one of these alternate phylums, I'm just mind blown. I don't even know what to do. It's like a whole new lease on life. Yeah, I just have to say that it does turn everything upside down for me. And it just kind of reinforces this response to so many people that are like, oh, you know, these sort of GLBTQ plus, etc. lifestyles aren't natural. And I'm just like, listen, sis, (laughs) if you want to talk about natural, let's talk about these hermaphroditic clams that use broadcast spawning. You know what I mean? If anything, it just shows us the great plethora of possibilities throughout all of the animal kingdom. So the world is our giant clam. I like that a lot. Yeah. I also have to say, Meredith, that I felt very connected to this animal. And before we planned the seahorse special, I was actively researching this clam. Oh, really? I was just thinking about what creature do I want to call upon the energy of if you will. Yep. And the clam being sicile and having its own little cozy home, but still just being beautiful and peaceful and just kind of contracting and releasing and contracting and releasing with its little symbiotic friends. (laughs) 
the Zuzanthele. Sounds like a weird, like, Brooklyn kid's name. Zuzanthele. Yeah, it is a little Xanthippy. It's exactly what I was thinking was Xanthippy. Yeah, from Kimmy yeah. Schmidt. Well, I guess, I don't know. Let's take a break. What do you say? Yeah, keep your mantles a little bit open, everybody. Yeah. How about over here, Kimmy, and let me get a good look at you. You know Granny doesn't see so well anymore. Um, Granny, what's wrong with your mouth? Where have all your teeth gone? Oh, oh my sweet Kimmy, you'll learn soon enough that once you become an old mouse, your darn teeth will let it fall out. I lost a whole lot of them just munching on some stale bread. Granny, don't tell me you've never heard of Brand Clubby's new Rodentures, new teeth for more effective nibbles? Now what kind of malarkey is that? You're saying there are dentures for mice? Not just mice, Granny. These dentures come in a wide variety of styles to fit rodent mouths of all shapes and sizes. You've got chinchilla choppers, vermin veneers, capybara canines, pika pearlies, and even a bucktooth baddies line for beavers, mole rats, and porcupines. Well, I never. How do I get my weird little hands on a set of my very own? Just get in touch with Rodentures, award-winning team of qualified prairie dentist dogs to get your fit kit sent directly to your mouse hole. Once they have your measurements, you'll be just days away from the nicest set of corn gnashers the world has ever seen. Oh, Timmy, I knew you were my favorite. Now come give Granny a kiss. Uh, that's okay, Granny. Thanks. Who's Hoops? Who's Hoops? Welcome to Who's Hooves, a brand new Animal Fan Club segment where you guess who's hooves. So, Meredith, these hooves help scale alpine mountains. Hmm. This hoof is in close proximity to a pair of dew claws. Oh, I think I have an idea, but I'll let you finish. This hoof has sharp edges and concave undersides that act like suction cups to help them grip the sides of steep, rocky cliffs. Whoa. I bet this hoof has vexed generations of mountain-faring people. Ibex. Ding, 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 ding. Whoa, really? Yeah. Okay, whose hooves, Mike? These hooves support a hulking body on two toes. These hooves may be partially hidden by brown or even furry white fringe. These hooves trample all over and about the Himalayas. And these hooves belong to a creature who, when it comes to horns and musk, they don't lack. It's the yak. It's a yak. Yay. Ding, 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 ding. Ding, ding. Great job. This hoof is sometimes served pickled. This hoof has features called the white zone and the horny capsule. (laughs) This hoof has a reputation for being in close proximity to sloppy situations. And if you dig my hip jam, this hoof is found on a future... Pig! Ham. Ham! Ding, ding, ding. Guess whose hooves, Mike? While these hooves primarily focus the weight on two toes, there are two more toes in the back, which from the side make these undulates look like they are walking on high hooves. These hooves trample across the majority of Europe and Asia. These hooves are more brownish in color, unlike their pink relatives' hooves. 
these amazing hooves are hardcore and will leave you begging for more. The wild boar. Yes! Ding, ding, ding! <laughs> what a successful first round of hooves, hooves. This is the bonus round, Meredith. Uh-oh, okay. This hoof has shaped modern life perhaps more than we realize. This hoof's owner has the same name for its genus, species, and subspecies. Okay. This hoof is extra beefy. (laughs) Yes. This hoof is not the hoof of a juggalo. It's the hoof of a... Buffalo! Ding, ding, ding. Bison, bison, bison. Bison, bison, bison. (laughs) Yes. Well, that was fun. Yeah. Great inaugural round of Who's Hooves. We'll see you again next time for... Texana you Texana we Texana who Texana me Kingdom In Amelia Carl Aeneas is problematic Phylum Cordata Protect your back Lift with your legs Class Amphibia They love a surfing turf Order Anura, bulging eyes and full of ribbits. Family. Hufani Day, not false toads, but true toads. Genus. Rinella, South American toads. Species. Rinella, Marina. It's the poster child for invasive species. It's the cane toad. Whoa. Have you heard any anything ever about cane toads, Mike? You know, I have not, Meredith. Oh, yes. This is great. So I have to tell you my um, animal inspo for this. So I was on a uh, Zoom call with my lunch table from high school. (laughs) So there were like nine of us on the Zoom and it was really adorable. But so we were reminiscing about our old like AP environmental science days. This class was just like epic. A whole handful of us were in there and it was just like a goofy group of kids. And the um, teacher was just oddly like encouraging of our goofiness. But anyway, it was just like a riot the whole time. Anyway, he showed us this video on VHS, of course, called Cane Toads in Unnatural History from 1988. And this fucking video, I swear, is the most bizarre thing. It's on YouTube. I watched it again. And it became like the source of unlimited inside jokes, especially between my friend Karen and I. And so seeing Karen the other night, I was like, oh my God, I'm totally doing cane toads. We would quote this thing. Karen even found it on Amazon, like the VHS and ordered it. And we would on sleepovers, like watch this documentary because it is just the most bizarre thing. It's highly recommended viewing for anybody. It's like an hour long and it is just insanity as are cane toads in general. So I'll kind of go between like referencing some of the bizarre shit in this documentary and giving you fun info about cane toads. There's not a whole lot to explain as far as like tax facts, like class amphibia. Obviously we've encountered that in Nura, Hufani Day, where it gets a little weird. This is funny. So it's species Renella marina. So marina we typically think of as like referring to water, right? But these guys are very much land-dwelling. And apparently this discrepancy comes from the fact that Carl Linnaeus, when he was documenting the cane toads, he referred to a 
Dutch illustration of the cane toads that had these guys in water as well. So Linnaeus, based on this false depiction of the cane toads in water, added Marina to their name. I'm like, you idiot. Whoa. They're not in the water at all, except for essentially in their tadpole phase. And beyond that, they love the land. Boy, do they love the land. Not a species of pirate toads. Definitely not. And I mean, like most amphibians, the tadpoles do have like an aqua phase. But after they come out of the water, they love their turf as opposed to their surf. So these toads are known for being fucking huge. So like your clam, imagine like the biggest sandwich you could possibly like hold in your hands without it falling apart. Okay. Are we talking like sort of one of those competition style burgers at a restaurant where it's like, if you can eat this extreme burger, it's free and your picture goes (laughs) on the wall. Otherwise you have to pay $50. Yes. That's exactly what I was saying. It's like a food challenge size sandwich would be the size of these toads. Man versus toad. The whole story of the cane toad could be called man versus toad. Yeah. So they're huge. Like they, you know, it's hard to like get your hands around them. And I think the heaviest one was five pounds. Um, and they can get up to like nine inches, which actually doesn't seem that big. But then when you see pictures of people holding them, you're like, damn, that's a huge toad. <laughs> They're dry and warty. The mothers give birth to like huge, huge broods. But again, like the seahorses, they have these huge broods, but only 0.5% actually make it to adulthood. Wow. But these frogs are also highly adaptable and you know, left unchecked, their populations can just balloon into the billions. So it's just crazy to think that 0.5% of tadpoles make it to adulthood, but their populations are so difficult to control. Like, what does that tell you about how many eggs are being laid? It's crazy. Billions and billions and billions of eggs. Yeah. Cray, cray. I mean, there's really not a whole lot in terms of like what's going on bodily that, you know, makes them anything different than, you know, toads around the world. So it's probably more interesting to talk about them as the invasive species, because this is kind of what often comes up when you mention cane toads. Essentially, the story goes, so these frogs are from like the Central American, South American region. They live in forests. But... Somewhere along the line, some scientists came up with the idea that these toads, because they're such voracious eaters and they pretty much eat anything like smaller than them, anything they can get their mouth around, essentially, including like mice and as was (laughs) noted in the documentary, ping pong balls. They thought that these frogs or these toads, excuse me, would be a good way to keep pest populations under control, particularly in sugarcane crops. There are these beetles called the cane beetle. And they're like, oh my God, these frogs are going to love, I mean, these toads, ah, these toads are going to love these beetles. We can just call them a neurons if that makes you feel better. Yeah, we can just go back up to order and keep it in a neura. <laughs> so these frogs were essentially introduced to like Hawaii, Puerto Rico, a lot of other Caribbean islands. They're even actually called in some of their names like Dominican frogs. Most notably, they were introduced into, what would that be? Like the northeastern region of Australia. These guys came in and they went nuts, essentially decimating the biodiversity of this area because for a couple of reasons, they are one, highly, highly poisonous. And along with that, they are not aposmatic. Like there's no signaling on them to indicate to any creature to stay away. So domesticated dogs, for instance, they're a big danger to doggos. 
Because dogs see a toad, they see a hoppy hop hop, and they're like, I'm going to go eat that. I'm going to go eat that. And then they bite down, and then they get a full mouth of this bufo toxin. Uh-huh. So essentially, like, <laughs> toad poison. It can be deadly, and it can even be deadly to humans as well. So I'll get back to the poison in a moment. But another thing that's crazy about these creatures is that they're just highly adaptable. I mentioned that they eat anything. And another thing is that they're homophilic, meaning that they're like drawn to humans and they actually coexist very well with humans. They love dog food. They love cat food. They'll literally eat anything that they can get their hands on or their weird frog hands on. Yeah. Toad hands on. Anura hands. Anura hands. I'm having a really hard time with this. No, it's tricky. It is tricky. They eat anything and they're also highly poisonous. So there's really not a lot keeping them in check. And the great irony of all of this is they brought them in to keep these pests under control in the sugarcane fields. Seems like somebody should have checked in on this before introducing these creatures. But actually the cane beetles actually dwell higher up on the sugarcane, whereas the frogs, they don't climb cane. So there was like really no synchronicity with the uh, lifestyles of these two creatures. So the entire reason why the toads were brought there in the first place, they can't actually fulfill that task? Yes, it's insanity. And they've just completely like overrun this northeastern region of Australia. And they've become, like I said, in the tax cheer, this kind of like poster child for invasive species. So <laughs> just to get into some of this goofy shit in this documentary, one of the scientists, he's like, oh, I'm not even going to try to attempt an Australian accent. I just can't do it. He's like, got to put on my got to put on my glasses before he essentially goes up to the paranoid gland on this toad. So that's the gland that when I guess activated or irritated or touched secretes this poison but he like squeezed it and the poison like popped out like you're popping a huge zit it's so gross i know it was like, <laughs> so there's that so the musical choices in this documentary were so funny it's worth it just alone so like for instance when they were showing the like the tadpole phase of these frog or these toads they had this chorus of children in the back singing like oh creatures bright and beautiful and it <laughs> so, so they had this guy on and he's kind of the sitar music is playing and there's like incense floating around the room and he's in dark shadows so you can't see his face but he was somebody who liked to smoke the or ingest the bufo toxin as oh a means God. of getting high whoa <laughs> but i just love the sitar music i was like okay i get it he's druggy i was watching a nature documentary and it was very like oh this is the mars ripoff and then okay now we're in the copeland ripoff you know (laughs) totally uh it's just so obvious and so the other hilarious part of this documentary is like they're documenting you know how much damage this species has done and you know how destructive it has been for native species and what a danger they pose to habitats that they don't belong in but it seemed like these people actually really love cane toads like there was one older dude that in the sentimental violins come in and he's like they jump on my feet i love it when they jump on my feet and then they'd like just let them help themselves to dog food and the best and this is the little girl i have been quoting since what year would that have been like 2002 this little girl sitting on the ground and she's got like her cane toad pet that she would like even dress up in doll clothes but she's like sometimes i call him toady and sometimes i call him cane and sometimes i call him dairy queen <laughs> it's like what like cool 
All right, girl. All right. It's all so crazy. And like, it just seems like people love them. And like one of the gifts I think sent to Charles and Diana for their wedding in 81 was like a book with cane toad hides pressed into it because their skin can kind of be made into this leather. There were whole songs like written for this documentary. It was like, cane toads are coming, cane toads are coming, main roads are humming with the cane toad blues. <laughs> I see why you were so committed to this documentary. At a oh young my age. gosh, it is just chock full of insane stuff. I had I took two pages of notes when I watched it. I'm just trying to see if there's any. Oh my gosh, they had this whole sequence meant to like freak you out about how you can't leave your toddlers unattended in their backyards because the cane toads are just all over the place. Like they're in like suburban areas. They are where people are. So they have this whole like suspense sequence of this little toddler running up to this frog or this toad that he sees and he goes, Edgar! This child has named this toad Edgar. And then the mom like sees the child like running towards the toad and she's like, and grabs him to get him away from the toad. But I mean, it's a real threat. I can imagine like a little kid picking up one of these things or licking it and just getting high to the gills and then dying. (laughs) Crazy. It's all such insanity. And then they show like other footage of like these cane toads will just kind of, not only do they eat anything, but they'll try to mate with anything. Someone was talking about all the goldfish they had lost because the cane toads kept trying to mate with them. And then there was this other shot of a cane toad trying to mate with like a squashed cane toad on the ground. It's so funny. These toads sound like really ridiculous. They are so ridiculous. It's all insanity and this is the last thing I you got to just check this out it's called cane toads and unnatural history but there was this scene and they're just like the camera is pointing down the street and you just see all these like little like dark balls on the road which are the cane toads just hanging out on the road and there's this like truck coming and swerving trying to hit them and then you hear the sound of them and they just like pop like balloons when you drive over them (laughs) it's insanity the whole thing is insanity how long is this documentary less than an hour And where can you view it? YouTube. Cane Toads, an unnatural history. Cane Toads, an unnatural history. Yes. Well, I know what I'm doing for the rest of the day. It won't even take the rest of your... Unless you choose to watch it over and over and over again, which you might want to. Yeah, well, I'm not going to commit. It's essential viewing for anybody with a sense of humor and an interest in animals. It's the most bizarre thing. I know exactly why our teacher chose to show it to us because we were a bunch of goof maloofs and he probably knew we would get such a kick out of it. And here (laughs) I am all these years later still talking about it. It holds up. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, so that's, I mean, a cane toads report for you an unnatural report i love that that was actually more about the documentary (laughs) than the creature itself yeah you'll see why when you watch it it's just insanity meredith do you know anything about the romance habits of the cane toads oh glad you asked i didn't even get to mention the nuptial patch (laughs) (laughs) wow it's gonna be pretty standard in nora stuff so essentially the um the females are larger, and then the men attach onto the back of them and essentially stick their 
like their little front feet, there's a little groove, I think, essentially, like maybe above like the frog's front shoulders. Mm -hmm. And it's like a little groove and they kind of attach in there. And that's the nuptial patch where they hook on. So they hold on to the nuptial patch and that's the amplexus pose, right? Where they're on top of each other. Yes. And it just seems like these frogs are just always getting it on because you would just see like there's ponds just full of like frogs hopping around, you know, with a male frog or a toad mounted on their back. And it just seems like normal, just a pond full of horny toads. It's another example of sort of male privilege and these toads that are just kind of bopping around when the lady's really doing all the work, literally carrying the weight of the male. Yes, exactly. So she just exudes, like while the man is in the amplexus position on top of her, she exudes a long string of eggs and those are fertilized and it has the come out into the water right that was true of my common toad and it had a silly name that i can't remember now bufo 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 yeah that was the name of the toad (laughs) but the actual stricky thing oh yeah i don't think they mentioned that in the documentary (laughs) yeah so i mean that's really all i have got for those invasive invasive species people they're not anything to play around with yeah i think that it's really interesting how there was this trend to kind of move creatures from one place to another, and it feels like it generally ends badly. Yeah, it doesn't work. And I mean, even like one of my favorite creatures, cats, they're essentially an invasive species that have... Invaded our hearts? Well, that, but they've also invaded, you know, our backyards and have really, you know, done quite a number, taken quite a swipe at the bird biodiversity in the wild. So it's tough. Yeah, well, I guess on that note, maybe we can take a break. Yes. Ah! What's wrong, Agnes? Well, Billy, I'm just finding it difficult to identify and achieve objectives for my flock. That sounds like a frustrating situation, Agnes. It sure is, Billy. I'm at my wing's end. I don't know what to do. I think that you need Brand Clubby's Squad Goals, an achievement planning system for your social group, developed in coordination with Artiodactyla Squad. Wow! Artiodactyla Squad is famously very well organized, much more so than us flighty bird brains here in Class Aves. Well, Agnes, we all have our strengths. One of Artiodactyla Squad's strengths is that cloven hooves are adept at deftly navigating both steep cliffs and a multitude of organizational products, such as calendars, phones, Bluetooth technology, and filing cabinets. I'd squawk! Artiodactyla Squad's hooves are notably nimble. And our nearly global distribution means that there's always a set of hooves nearby to help you with any troubleshooting. Or take a class at one of our learning centers, where professionals can learn the latest technology and students can learn organizational strategies to raise their undulate-grade point average. Wow! Artiodactyla Squad is so inspirational! Yet we are incapable of flight, which is why the offerings of Class Aves remain an important wing of Brand Clubby Worldwide Enterprises. That was strangely affirming and most unexpected, Billy! That's the Artiodactyla difference, Agnes. Hoofs up! Hoofs up! Give me some wing, Agnes! Hey? Yeah, it's sort of like hay and sort of like an alfalfa moment. Oh, could it be that we're in the feed bag? It feels like the feed bag. It sure does. It sure smells like the feed bag. 
Yeah, definitely feeling that scratchy burlap. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Conan in Peoria asks, It's pretty flat here, and sometimes I feel like I'm missing out on cool mountain creatures. Am I in fact missing out? Well, no. I mean, it takes all landscapes, Conan. Yeah, and I don't know, Conan, it's, you're not quite in the Great Plains just yet, but you're definitely in the Flatlands. And I think that there's some fun Flatland creatures there. They've just adapted differently than mountain creatures. Or, Conan, you can consider the history of your land, which was probably roamed by the great bison bison once mm. upon a time. You know, you could probably put your your hands on the ground and really pull up some spiritual bison energy. That's not a mountain creature, but it's still a very exciting creature. Yeah, I agree with that completely. Yeah. So I say, Conan, you know, maybe don't be so um, landscapist. Yeah, Conan, it feels like you're maybe projecting some other dissatisfaction with your home life onto the creatures in your home area. And I guess I feel like the grass is always greener, you know, the mountains are always filled with more goats and stuff, I guess. But I think that it's important to find happiness wherever you may be. Yeah, exactly. Fish position. Ding, ding, ding. Ding, ding, ding. All right. Graylick from Berlin asks, what animal do you think is the most metal? Whew. Probably some sort of goat, like a mountain goat. Like an ibex, I think, is the most metal. We're pretty hoof-heavy this episode. I know, and you know what I was thinking? There was, um, I'm always plugging this in Sandy Zoo, but they have this particular, it's not Sir Francis Bacon, the, the cute pig, the river pig that they have right. that has, like, the furry ears. They had another pig who had this, like, long black mane almost and these like wacky horns and they just had this story i think of him and he was just like you know kind of like head banging and like leaping around out in like this grass area and i just it, it, he looked like the most metal because he had this long black like stringy hair and horns and he just looked like so fucking gnarly yeah i was like this is the most metal pig i've ever seen yeah oink oink I think that definitely an important part of being a metal pig is having a good, like, conditioner. Right. I mean, all those metal guys, all those hairband guys, they really just needed a good leave-in. Only. A lot of crispy manes back in that day. Yeah, for sure. Condition those manes. Good mane and tail shampoo? Man, get on it. Yeah, that's what I use. Resources are out there. Oh, really? Oh, totally. I love that. Yeah, it is a very hoof-heavy episode, but that's okay. Yeah. So I, I'm going with the Ibex and you're... I'm going with that pig. I'm not sure what his species is. Okay. Well, a fish position. A fish position. Yeah. Ding, ding, ding. ding, ding. ding. Well, uh, we can officially say that we think undulates are pretty freaking metal. Yeah. I think that that's definitely yeah. a part of our fish position. For sure. So Sydney from Sydney asks, if you had a kangaroo pouch, what would you keep in it? Definitely my phone and yep. some chapstick, probably. Yeah, I was thinking tissues. I just always need, like, a tissue. Yeah, me too. And maybe some, like, fruit snacks, because why not? It's really good to be able to just kind of have a little snack when you need it and keep your blood sugar up. Yeah, in which case, fruit snacks is probably not the best idea. I don't know, maybe, like, a, a pack of almonds. Yeah, I was just about to say almonds. That's a good one. Yeah. So, okay, wait. 
almonds, phone, tissues. I would also want something because I often like to carry around like some sort of funny prop in my purse for something. I don't know. Of the various things I've had, I've had like a funny pair of just glasses with like just clear frames in them just to pull out when like the conversation gets boring or like, I don't know, some sort of joke prop. <laughs> Props. Okay, sure. Yeah, I, you know I like a good prop. Yeah. Okay, so um, what are we saying? Tissues, almonds, Tissues, cell phone, phone, props. Comedy props. I don't know. I guess I feel like this question's limiting. I can't commit to just a few items. You know, I feel like it would change based on where I was going. Maybe a bottle of water. Yeah, an umbrella. Oh, that's good for a rainy day. It sure is. But now we're getting to the point where it's like our pouch is going to be so heavy, we're not going to be able to hop around. So we have to be discerning with our pouch products. Maybe we should limit it to three pouch products. Okay. So essential pouch products. Comedy prop, definitely number one. Yes. Snacks. (laughs) Probably a snack and a tissue. Comedy prop, snacks, and tissues? Yep. Ding, ding, ding. Ding, ding, ding. products keep the questions coming animal fan club pod at gmail.com we love to hear from you and we hope you're having a wonderful day and uh you check know check out that cane toad documentary if you need something to do what's the name of it again meredith cane toads an unnatural history cane toads an unnatural history everyone that's your assignment for next week <laughs> bye bye Animal Fan Club is created and produced by us, Meredith Jurgens and Mike Luno. We also create all our original music and sonic experiences. Send us your listener feedback questions to animalfanclubpod at gmail.com. Follow us on Instagram at animalfanclubpod, at Meredith Jurgens and at Mike underscore Luno. And don't forget to rate and review our podcast on your favorite app. That really helps us out. Thanks for listening to our show. We hope it makes your heart and spirit glow. We'll be here next week for another meeting of the Animal Fan Club.